Welcome to Real Wealth, Real Health, the show that empowers you with insights, information, and inspiration to achieve your version of financial wellness. Learn how to balance living a full life today with planning for the future. This podcast is brought to you by Alpha Investing, a real estate-centric private capital network that provides exclusive investment opportunities to its members. And now, here are your hosts, Ada Piedrico and Daniel Coca. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Real Wealth, Real Health. This is the first episode of 2022, and it is such a pleasure to welcome back Akhil Patel. Akhil is the director at Property Share Markets Economics. He is a leading expert on economic, financial, and property cycles. We had Akhil on episode 21, which was the kickoff episode for the year 2021. And so we're bringing him back to kickoff 2022. In this conversation, we get a lot more in-depth into the mechanics of the 18.6-year cycle, where we are in that cycle, if we're tracking to the way that they track the cycle and we are tracking according to the 18.6-year cycle, we get into some predictions for the coming year and practical ways that investors can use the cycles to inform investment decisions. So we are in the growth phase, the second half of the 18.6-year cycle, where it is expected that we see a lot more asset growth, a lot more property, land, real estate pricing growth. So this is a very important episode for anyone who likes to track macroeconomics, who wants to know information that is not what is reported in the mainstream to really inform a more precise and refined strategy for investing in real estate. I love to nerd out on this stuff with Akil. I hope you will find this episode as interesting as it was for me to get into with Akil. So if you read your history, you come to the view, and I know you're you're working your way through Phil's excellent book, you come to the view that actually the cycle pretty much times all the time and something, and often it's something people haven't thought of, comes about to kind of make the cycle happen. And it's happened so regularly in history that it's not, you know, you can't say it's just lucky, a lucky coincidence. It's, it's happened over and over again for for 200 years or so. So I think that's the kind of the the first general point. Um, The second point is, you know, Phil and I are are on record saying at the beginning of 2019, we did a webinar in London for some of the subscribers of my old newsletter. And, you know, we basically said, we are at the point in the cycle when we're expecting the mid-cycle recession. We can see certain economic data is telling us that actually the global economy is slowing down. We we use slightly different cycles to kind of do a roadmap for the stock market. We can see that 2019 will be a strong year, but actually we're looking for a top in 2020. And given that stock market cycle topping out with the, the you know the idea that the global economy is moving into recession means that actually we're expecting some kind of panic in 2020. Yeah. So this was in 2019. Uh, and that's exactly what we got and it's kind of fitting the two things together clearly we didn't know that covid was going to happen and you know frankly not many people did we didn't know that the reaction to covid 
was going to be as significant as it has been. We didn't, you know, we didn't frankly think that Western governments could shut their economies down pretty much indiscriminately. But we did know once that had happened and, you know, we had a lot of people saying, well, this is going to really crash the property market. And this is really going to, you know, this is the worst recession since the Great Depression. And in the UK, they were saying it's the worst recession in 300 years. And, you know, people providing all the data to show that it was. We knew that actually the recovery would be quite quick, that the banking system would be quite using all the money they'd saved during lockdown, you know, where they wanted to live because the, because the, you know, the pandemic has caused a few people to, to make some kind of decisions that they might not otherwise have done, but that's always the case. I mean, people made different decisions after 9-11, for example, this time last cycle, there was always something that comes in, but the ultimate kind of cause of the cycle, which is, you know, how the property market behaves and ultimately how the thing goes into overdrive and there's a lot of speculation and a lot of bank lending that never changes. And that's ultimately what gets you to the crisis point. So we've seen at Alpha because we're doing, you know, we're private real estate and a lot of it, most of it last year was multifamily. And we actually started to invest a lot in single family rentals because it's about 50% of the U.S. rental market. 50% of renters live in detached homes. In other words, a single, single family renters, not apartments. And there, there are better yields there than there are in, in multifamily because about 50% of multifamily is owned by institutional investors. Whereas only about one or 2% of the detached home, single family rentals owned by institutions, but they're quickly turning their attention that way, so many of the trends, I mean, COVID really accelerated so many demographic trends, you know, including that. And we saw, we saw just cap rates come down so quickly, like in a matter of months, it was, it was, it was almost like dizzying how quickly it came down. And yet the belief and what's being executed on and what, you know, is still happening when they're coming full cycle, some projects, even from 2020 already is that people are willing to pay for the NOI growth. They're willing, they're willing to pay much higher, essentially property prices than, than we would have ever expected. We're not, we're not underwriting cap rate compression. We just, you know, just to play it, to play it safe, I would say, but we're seeing it. And the question is always for how much longer can this go on, so to speak. And then when I look at the clock and when I look at the cycle, it looks like for another few years, just based on the cycle. Well, you always get a sustained period where people are paying more and more for assets. I'd probably say at this point in the cycle, you know, we're still kind of coming out of the mid-cycle recession. There's still an element of recovery. I think the next sorts of things we'll start to see is, you know, earnings and wages increasing and therefore rents will, to a certain extent, go up, which I think alleviates some of the pressure on cap rates. But I think the reality is that people will pay more and more, and I don't see that they're going to be much recovery in, in, in those, in those metrics, people just get used to paying more and more and, and it, until it becomes normal. So, so, you know, price anchoring is still very much kind of at the levels it was at the first half of the cycle or in previous cycles, after a couple of years of cap rates being where they are, people will think that's the new normal. Uh, and then they will, you know, they'll continue 
they'll continue to to pay more and more borrow more and more uh, and that's you kind of need to see that in order for the peak to arrive right and you have in the clock that the next so right now would be like the land boom and then the lavish spend on public works which at least here in the US it's still they're still trying to finalize this build back better yeah. but essentially some version of it is going to get pushed through i would imagine so again it's like there there it is on that clock like by the time that it, that money actually starts to flow through into the economy i would imagine it's going to be 2023 2024 yeah i mean there's always going to be and there's going to be stuff around election times in the us right you know the year before an election where all these sort of additional measures come forward or tax cuts because that also puts more money into the economy or retain leaves more money in the economy which then go into real estate yeah i mean it, it that that side of things was really interesting i mean in a sense you know you could get an infrastructure bill at any point why the why the second half is because you know by the second half of the cycle you've had the mid-cycle recession one of the responses that government makes uh, to the mid-cycle recession is you know reducing interest rates and or increasing public spending so that's kind of you know that's that's basically almost like clockwork uh, a response to to the to mid-cycle recession but also i think whereas at the start of the cycle there's so much fear about you know kind of you know no one really knows what's going on and, and so on there's maybe that holds things back a little bit one thing that i think is very clear from phil's book and and certainly it's a point that i make quite a bit in in the book that I'm currently writing is that that each new cycle starts off with some kind of new technology dominating some of the discussion uh, and some of the way that new businesses are formed. I think by the time you get a few years into the second half of the cycle, you know, some of the investment needs in relation to that new technology are very apparent and therefore, you know, the response is then to roll out public investment to respond to that. Would that new technology be Bitcoin and cryptocurrency that technically started in 2008, but has really, really come into its own during this mid-cycle recession? Well, I'd, I'd go a bit sort of further back than that. I'd say that the, probably the, the thing that really changed things, the game changer in, in 2007 was a smartphone. Ah. The smartphone 4G suddenly everyone had a very high power computer with a fast internet connection. And you can see the enormous number of industries that have been created just on the basis of that uh, social media and, you know, ride sharing and other things. And, and to a certain extent, I mean, you know, Bitcoin wouldn't be nearly the sort of technology it would be if, you know, you would had to access it via your desktop computer, for example. So, so I think that that's kind of it. Bitcoin for me is a good candidate for the new vehicle for channeling money into the real estate market. So there's always something. So in the 70s, you know, they developed the new kind of real estate investment trust vehicle. You know, in the 80s, there was a lot of kind of derivative trading and, and so on. In the 2000s, you know, the financial industry innovated in terms of securitization. And in the UK, a lot of buy-to-let, what we call buy-to-let mortgages. So a lot of third-party investors buying up property to rent out to people. There's any number of vehicles now. We've got SPACs, we've got you know, cryptocurrency, we've got meme coins, got meme stocks. Uh, you've got a lot of young traders who kind of regard trading as a bit of a game and the apps are designed as games. And, you know, they've had a couple of very good years. And in fact, they might have several very good years. And 
unfortunately it'll all come crashing to an end at some point so uh, i mean you know everyone everyone ultimately learns the same lesson in markets and there's no avoiding those lessons so and there's you know for all for all the talk of a new era blah 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 i mean it's i mean it's not the first time that someone's thought it's a new era so i mean it always comes back to human behavior psychology and yeah. to some degree the emotion underlying it i mean otherwise I just like, otherwise, like, that's the only thing human nature is the only thing fundamentally that underlies a cycle, despite what it looks like on the outside underneath it, it's still, there's just, there's that human psychology. And even for a while, when I was younger, I used to think, oh, you know, poo poo the past, don't look at the past, those old people don't know what they're doing, you know, like, I think most, like most young people, and then, you know, and then I don't know at what point I actually, you know, maybe just got a little smarter and said, well, there's probably a lot to learn. I got old. (laughs) I said old there, not old. Um, This is, there's a certain wisdom in, in years, isn't there? So yes, yeah. And I really appreciated I talk about him a lot as, and I think we talked about this last year too, was Ray Dalio, who's done, he does all this historical economic research and he brings it forward. And, you know, same with Phil's book where he's bringing forward and he's showing how the cycles played out every single time. And underneath it is what we know very easily as fear and greed that underlies all the cycles. And I know you talked about that in, in a few of the videos in that November presentation. So what have you found with that and the, this, this conversation about human nature and, and human behavior that underlies the cycles? Well, I mean, there's, there's actually a huge number of ways in which it sort of influences it. You, you tend to, I mean, I think there's an old adage in markets that, you know, they can't peak when there's fear because not everyone is in the market. Uh, and it's only when that's flipped around to greed and everyone's the, the fear then is not, is not fear of things collapsing. It's the fear of missing out uh, or, you know, greed and, and greed rules the way there's no consideration really of fundamental kind of metrics. It's just about whether you can make a profit, a capital gain. When that happens, you're in the point at which you can get a peak in the market. Uh, and then the question is, when is that going to happen? And and it seems to be that that process just takes 18 years for, for whatever reason. And, you know, it takes 18 years for us to get to the point when everyone, all the skepticism is, has finally been, has been overcome. And you then, then you get the peak of the cycle. On the other side, at the start, when things have crashed, it's four years since the last peak, you know, stock market is typically down 50%, you know, uh, and we know we know from our sort of writing of financial publications that at the start of the cycle, you know, when we are saying, Phil and I, that, you know, this really is the best time to be buying that you'll ever see in your lifetime, probably. The, the only publications that will sell are the ones that are forecasting the end of America or the end of Australia or the end of the UK or, you know, the collapse of the dollar, et cetera, et cetera. And you can't get people to pay attention. Uh, and that's because fear is so... It's so prevalent that they can't and you know everyone has an opinion about what's going on in the economy it's usually that and it's actually quite funny to read historical narratives about it you don't see this so much in books that are written now but if you go back to newspapers back in the day i mean after the bankers panic of 1907 they did a sort of investigation people saying well you know this has been caused by the spending patterns of women you know they're obviously overdoing it and you know they've got too much freedom too much control over the family purse. And so that's led to this, you know, overconsumption, etc. They're they're searching for all these outlandish explanations when they should really be confident that actually at that point, maximum fear 
everyone is out of the market. There's no more selling to be done. So the only way by definition has got to be up. But of course, emotions are very powerful and you can't see that. Uh, and you get that, you get to a certain extent, similar kinds of dynamics at the mid-cycle recession, which we've just been through. So, so, and actually Dalio is an interesting character to raise. Uh, and I know that I wasn't, I was maybe slightly dismissive of his very good work. Uh, and of course he manages a lot more money uh, than I do. And he's a lot more well-regarded than I am. But, you know, in 2018, everyone who was in Davos was pretty, pretty bearish. I think that, I think I'm right in saying that. No, sorry, 2019. 20, uh, January 2019, everyone was pretty, pretty bearish. Uh, and of course, then 2019 was a very banner year in the stock market. At the start of 2020, they were very bullish. And I think it was even a member of the top team at Bridgewater said that, you know, the business cycle is kind of different now. And Dalio said that cash is trash and and so on. So even even the biggest names in Wall Street are kind of looking the wrong way at at these important points in the cycle. Of course, it wasn't the major crisis that we had in 2007, but you do get the kind of same same things. You had the greed, and then of course in in March 2020 and in the summer of 2020, it was looking like we're on the brink of some kind of major economic collapse. But of course it wasn't. It was, in fact, the best time to be buying stocks and, and property in, in the next seven years. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, so many, um, so many questions. One thing that I did want to touch on is the relationship between the stock market and the 10, there's like a 10 year cycle, you said, about stocks. And I know this could maybe be complex, but to the degree possible, how does the 18.6 year real estate cycle interact with some of the other cycles? And how do we use those to understand when to be buying and selling, whether it is stocks or real estate? Yeah. So the, the relationship between those two cycles is fairly complicated, but it is a, I mean, I think fundamentally the stock market doesn't go up when you're having an economic crisis. And so therefore the most important thing is to understand where you are in the real estate cycle. And I think very few stock market traders get that partly because they're not, you know, no one is really taught that land has this sort of fundamental role in the economy. And so therefore they don't really see the economic cycle. Of course, they might understand shorter term stock market cycles, which, you know, to a certain extent is quite helpful. I, in, I think one of my publications for property share market economics combined, I was, so what I did is I took the Dow Jones industrial average or the broadest stock market index for the US that I could find. Obviously the Dow Jones wasn't didn't exist in 1800 and cut it up into 18 year segments and then sort of combine them. And you, what you see is, is a pattern, which is very close to the idealized pattern of the real estate cycle, i.e. there are two halves of where stocks are going up and there is then a mid cycle recession, which in some cases, like in 2000 and, and 2002, between 2000 and 2002, the stock market came down about 40%, so quite significantly. Other times, the mid-cycle recession is the markets are trading through a range like they were in the early 80s, or very sharply down and very sharply up again as it was in 2020. So that can be a bit of a variable thing. But the stock market comes down at the end of the real estate cycle by at least 50%. There are a couple of occasions where it's been a bit less, and there's been some occasions such as after 1929 where it's been significantly more. So to answer your question, the main thing is the 18.6 year cycle, but within 
within the kind of decadal cycles, which we write about quite a lot in our annual roadmap, you typically find the first couple of years of a decade tend to be relatively up and down, shall we say. It's not been so much the case in 2021. 2022, I think it's going to be interesting. So so our 2022 roadmap, I think, will be quite a good read. But anyway, that sends, sets a foundation for what tends to be pretty strong years in the middle of a decade up to a peak, depending on where we are in the real estate cycle. Right, right. And it seems like the real estate peaks before the stock market in that... Well, land, land does. Land. Yes. So okay, you, can we no one... distinguish that actually? Like, that, I think that's really good because I know that there's land and then you talk about the, the economic rent of land. And then obviously within real estate, we have primary home, we have what we do private, there's REITs, there's, you know, there's, I know one of the leading indicators is the construction home builder stocks. So yeah, can we get into that a little bit to clarify? Well, we don't really measure land. I mean, but fundamentally that we're talking about we're talking about real estate cycles, we're talking about land cycles. So when when a property appreciates, it's not the building, which is, you know, getting, which is wearing and tearing and going down in value. It's the the underlying land. And the the value of land is to do with a reflection of the quality of local infrastructure and, you know, and, and the, you know, the prosperity of the community and the size of the population and other trends like are businesses coming in, are people relocating there and creating demand for for that location, which is a scarce asset. So that's basically what drives the economic cycle, drives the real estate cycle and so on. Land tends to peak before other 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 assets, at least residential land, partly because, I mean, people will overbid for housing for a, few, you know, for a number of months after land has peaked because, you know, we're talking about raw land, which builders are developing, and it takes a bit of time for that to feed through into the rest of the market. That's the first thing to peak in the cycle then you will then see it in house prices particularly for new new buildings there's no longer the same kind of expectation of growth builders will then tend to hold out for higher prices that will slow the volume of transactions which is one of the reasons why house building stocks then tend to peak and start to come down because analysts are recommending those stocks not seeing the same growth in earnings that's why it's a leading indicator because the broader market is typically going up uh, or continuing to go up for a bit longer because they haven't quite figured out the impact on the rest of the economy. But those um, tend to peak like a couple of years seems based on what I was reading. It seems like it can peak like even up to like a couple, like 18 to 24 months before the land peak, the builders stocks before the before the stock market peak before the land peak i mean it's possible in some cycles that the analysts have worked that out in advance i'm not sure they were too far ahead in 2006 which is when i think land peaked in the us early 2006 i meant it peaks bef- like a couple years before the bottom so like it peaks oh, yes, and then yes. land slightly peaks but like you can see in the charts you can really see that like the home builder prices peak and then two years later it's like the bottom yeah pretty consistently yeah i mean we don't have as much great data going back because you know a lot of these stocks weren't listed prior to probably prior to the 70s but yeah no that is typically a two-year process to get to the really darkest point of the cycle and then you get the sort of start of the turning things around the rescue period another couple of years and then you get to the confirmation that actually the new cycle has started by which point probably the stock market is already starting to 
trend up again. So right. the stock, so the stock market tends to be late in, at the end of the cycle. So there's a bit of euphoria that takes it beyond the land cycle peak, and then the stock market will come down typically very hard and find a low before either before land part land falls to its to its lows or before you start to get any meaningful recovery in, in land prices. Yeah. So I wanted I wanted to actually ask about the home building because we're seeing a lot of construction now in the US. And I, I was yeah. looking at the home builder stocks that are at all time highs quite quite significantly. And a lot of news or statistics out there, people are saying there's still not enough there's still not enough homes for the demand or places to live, whatever, you know, yeah. housing supply in general, there's just not enough of it because it's still, because everyone stopped building at the great recession. So 2007, 2008, everybody stopped building. And it seems that just now they're finally starting to come back and build again. I wonder if, I guess my question is, I, I wonder are we, are they going to be able to build enough homes before the next crash? And then we're still undersupplied. And is that just a chronic thing going forward that we're, we're always undersupplied? Cause by the time these guys are, are like cranking back up to build, you know, a few years in we're crashing. I mean, I think that there's always authoritative forecasts related to how few homes are being built. I mean, I think it's probably more accurate to say they're not being built or they weren't being built or they're not in the places where people are now moving to and people are moving to secondary and tertiary cities. In this case, it's, you know, coronavirus seems to be the spur, but there's always, there's always something. And it's partly because they're priced out of, you know, the primary cities and, and, and so are businesses as well. And, you know, they were looking for cheaper places to, to employ people so that they can, you know, cut on costs. So that there's that kind of same dynamic at play. I think the issue with building though, the second half of the cycle is that everyone is building very hard on the basis of the same forecast and no one is actually coordinating to see that we're not overdoing it. But re regardless of that, it's, it's, it's also part of the price. So if people are, people are not buying what, or they can no longer afford to buy what everyone is cranking out because they need to make a certain return on their costs and part of their costs includes inflating land prices, then that is going to tank the market because you can't shift that stock. You know, then, then you get a chain reaction. Banks are no longer, they have a bunch of bad loans on their balance sheets. They'll stop lending to the rest of the economy that will slow businesses down and, and so on. But property market starts to tank. Banks become insolvent and need bailing out and there's a stock market crash. So it does, you know, it can be is things don't need to look that bad in general for there to be a major crisis. So most of the counties in the US in 2008 were actually okay in terms of loans in arrears and banks having lent to them and still being, you know, you know, having a, a rising number of bad debts, but not, it wasn't crazy. But when Bear Stearns and then Lehman Brothers collapsed, it just precipitated a major crash based upon you know, what ultimately was a relatively small number of bad subprime mortgages. Uh, and that, you know, that led into other problems, you know, with certain banks, then the interbank market or the repo market dried up as banks stopped lending to each other because they didn't know how, you know, who owned what and, uh, and so on. And so then you had a much greater crisis of confidence, which, you know, spread around uh, all over the place. So it doesn't necessarily take too much, which is one of the reasons why you need to kind of follow what's going on at the margins, as we say. So in the kind of smaller communities 
where there's still quite a lot of building going on, but there's a smaller population. There's actually probably thinner demand if there's if there's some kind of bad news and so people stop going there and suddenly you've got five house builders, you've suddenly got, you know, 80 properties to offload in the next six months and there's simply not any way of doing it without tanking the market. Yeah, we've seen a lot of the secondary tertiary market migration here in the US and there's been a, a massive out migration from from California, Illinois, and New York State. Those yeah. are the three net losers. And obviously Texas, Florida, Tennessee have been net gainers, but especially Texas and Florida. And so you have like your the Dallases of, of the world now are very big markets. Like they're very active markets. A lot of companies are moving there. There's a lot of jobs being created. And then from there you see, you know, it's not affordable to be in Dallas anymore. So now it's Fort Worth. And then people are moving down to, you know, Houston. And yep. then you get Fort Lauderdale and Tampa and Florida and you start to get, you really start, Ripple. it just spreads. It just yeah, trickles. Ripples. And, trickles. Yeah. And, and we're seeing some very tertiary markets with four caps. Like the very, like very tertiary markets that you would never have assumed that random towns in Ohio are now being bid up like crazy. And so, yeah, so it, it makes a lot of sense. So it's like where it's, it's almost like musical chairs. Like it's like, where does it stop? What town is the one that by the time everybody gets there thinking, oh, this is the last bastion of, of this is where I'm going to get a good deal by the time they get there you know, the chair's gone and there's nothing, there's nothing there, you know? <laughs> I mean, that's, I mean, that's the million dollar question in a sense, but you, you don't, in some ways you don't need to know that you just look at kind of what's going on in the stock market. It will tell you mm -hmm. kind of that actually, this is no longer, this is no longer now a, a market that is flowing in the way that it was. And this is the thing. Once you get to a speculative peak, in the market, it can only be sustained when the flow of capital into it is increasing year on year. If it slows down, then prices have to fall. They can't plateau. They're either going up or they're going down. And you'll see that first in the stock market if you know what you're looking for. And so in the cycle, I was, what is the winner's curse? It's the final two years of crazy, mad behavior where people are speculating like there's no tomorrow and and then you know fundamental values don't play any role or maybe more precisely when people are bidding for real estate they aren't just bidding for price based upon the current level of of rents or earnings they are assuming an increase in earnings next year and a capital appreciation so they're playing for tomorrow's growth today you get that a lot on the winner's curse and so it's the curse is that you have enough money to actually beat off the competition to acquire that asset because two years after the peak, it will probably be underwater. Right. As an investor in you know, real estate, would someone, if I buy now and I, knowing what I know, and I think I'm going to buy now and I'm, I'm just going to hold it, am I better off holding through the next bottom or am I better off selling at the next peak and then buying at the bottom? depends on the asset. So if you've got good quality assets in good quality locations where you know there's going to be long term demand, you've got assets which median buyers want to have, i.e. So there'll be that sort of continued demand for it. I don't think you should ever sell those, frankly. If you've got 
say slightly less valuable assets but now nonetheless they might be doing well for you the time to sell would be to a year before the peak so you sell the lesser quality assets in the rising market and you know leave don't don't try and top the very peak just and leave a bit of money on the table for the, yeah. the poor sod who's going to buy from you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's like, I, I really like this idea of like buying to hold and like, if you're going to hold for long enough and it's a good asset, then why not? Why not hold even like, let's say somebody today is saying like, I have some money for the next couple of years and I'm, you know, even though there's a lot of bidding going on and prices are going up, 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 but if it's the right asset, then just hold it through, you know, hold it through the next downturn. Because then I think about in parallel, I think about the stock market and I think about, you know, the average returns of the stock market and how people's savings and retirements are halved, right? When, when it crashes and, you know, do you hold through that? Do you, you know, obviously if you're dollar cost averaging, you continue to dollar cost average, but there's also that question of if you know what you're doing and if you know what to look for and you can somewhat time it appropriately, you can maybe avoid losing as much and then buying at the bottom. I think it's really hard for most people who can't do that and they panic sell instead of hold. So it's always, it's like always a, it's always a toss up for me with the stock market stuff. Cause it's, it's more liquid obviously than real estate. And you can, yeah. you know, that emotion can grab you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, there's no, there's no, you know, there's no one answer to that question. You know, it, it, it really depends on why you're invested in the stock market. If you're, if you're someone who lives off dividends and you've got a bunch of utility and healthcare stocks, which have very solid dividends, actually you can't really sell because you you know you won't have your income so you know you might want to find some kind of way of hedging or just ride it out i mean the, the worst thing is of course to be the sort of stock market investor who who has made money in business say uh, and w- wants to diversify their earnings they buy stocks you know one year before the, and then it comes down 50 percent, and then they think oh my god this yeah. is going to go down much further and then they sell right at the bottom which basically happens a lot so if you are if you are riding down, if you are in the crash phase and you can hold, hold and wait for the recovery. Good. That's good to know. Yeah. I think for a lot of people, that's, that's a big, that's a big question. So now that we're in the second half of the cycle, and I remember this from your, from your presentation, there's strong cyclical sectors. And I have, I have a slide up here that I screenshotted from, from the presentation, but basically you have infrastructure, commodities, real estate, banking and fintech, the green transition and defense and aerospace. Those are, that's what, if somebody's thinking today cyclically, and I know that tech kind of falls out of favor at a certain point with maybe it's, you know, due to inflation and certain things that are going on today. I've seen a lot of other economists as well talk about the cyclical shift out of tech stocks and you know maybe into into this so can you talk a little bit about these sectors well they're they're mainly related to the themes that you find in the second half of each cycle so you know obviously real estate and banking is is hopefully obvious to those who kind of understand a little bit about the cycle but there's you know we've talked about the massive rollout of infrastructure and a lot of construction are going on around the world not just in the us but also in the uk and europe china and you know, the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative, which I think they're going to call something else, you know, got a burgeoning middle class in Africa. So all of the infrastructure needs to go in that 
So that's, there'll be a lot of construction. So companies that are exposed to all that activity should do well. We're, we're also in a commodities cycle, upside of a commodity cycle. So, and, you know, that's consistent with the real estate cycle, a lot of construction going on, a lot of demand for raw materials. You know, I, and by the way, and these are sort of slightly longer term trends. I'm not saying that necessarily next year in the first six months, you're going to get a massive boom in, say, the price of iron ore. There's actually some of it, some of those commodities are looking a bit weak at the moment. Um, so, so those are some of the themes. We also know from history that when you get the, the final few years of the commodity cycle, it tends to be also one where there's a lot of geopolitical tension, partly related to making sure that you have access to natural resources. So, so defense and other kind of stocks are part of that process. Tech does fall out of favor to a certain extent, because I think what finds more favor at the moment is uh particularly in this inflationary environment is companies with you know good earnings and you know some tech companies have earnings in the future but not necessarily now so so that might not do quite so well but i i would have to point out that you can see a lot of large tech companies moving into kind of real estate type or finance type yeah. areas yeah. so they're exposed to that half of the real estate cycle so it wouldn't surprise me at all to at some point see an Apple mortgage or a you yeah. know Facebook house building company or something. And and so so their share prices might reflect therefore not so much the core business but the, the real estate business or the finance business or the construction business. Right. Yeah, I've seen a lot of that there's been for years now I've seen a lot of basically like I wouldn't necessarily call them consumer company, but not not finance companies opening finance divisions, which, you know, of course it's mostly lending because that's a great way for them to to make money. And now there's this big push around cryptocurrencies, whether Facebook ever has their own. It's just been interesting, I guess, in general, what I'm trying to say is that I've noticed over the years, a lot of companies sort of suddenly have their own financing so much more than before. I'm pretty sure Walmart has a bank of its own. Yeah. Um, but it, I mean, actually you got, you know, you saw some of that in the two thousands as well. Right, I think right. Gen GE, General Electric, didn't they, did, didn't they have some kind of financing arm? I know that in the Japan bubble in the late eighties, a lot of these, you know, large Japanese industrial uh, companies that, you know, were world leading making cars and televisions and other things also went into speculating in the stock markets in, in real estate so that, that when when you get a boom people find that it actually pays much more to to be speculating in assets than it does to actually be making things and so you'll see a continuation of that probably on a level that we've never seen before and, and more global than we've ever seen before i think that's certainly going to be the you know each cycle contributes something different to to our sort of experience and sort of the the global nature of it the sort of slightly ephemeral nature of it in, in some ways with, you know, all sorts of companies that you don't really know what they do kind of being part of the action, I, I think will be the con contribution this, this cycle, just as, you know, last cycle, it was a lot of using computing power to make decisions about credit, for example. And in, in other cycles, it was things like in you know Japan introduced the interest only mortgage or the hundred. In fact, they introduced a hundred year mortgage and all this sort of thing. So, there's always something new that comes up each cycle, and, and that's probably the arena where we'll get something new this time. Yeah, it'll, it'll certainly be interesting to see this this cycle play out and continue to see 
this year play out, the more the more I dig into the content and all the newsletters and everything that that you're all putting, you know, putting out there. It's been it's been very helpful for me to understand everything. Plus, I'm in the space and in the industry to a certain degree. And so, yeah, I try to I try to watch it and I'm always trying to watch the emotionality of, you know, there's the. There's always FOMO for everyone. I don't want to miss out. It's going up. Oh, by the dip, you know, you catch a falling knife sometimes. Like there's, there's so much emotion that goes into it. It's really hard to keep that emotion separate, the excitement, which the word greed for me, I always think, well, I'm not greedy. I'm just excited. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I don't like to like paint myself with the greed brush because, but there's a level of excitement that that goes into it. And as I think about 2022 and, and the couple years that we're coming out of, I am thinking a lot about volatility and what is your expectation on about volatility? What can we expect? I think, I think in one of your presentations, you were saying that the first couple of years in new decade are always volatile or years ending in twos are volatile. If I understood that correctly. Yeah, they can be. I mean, so a year's ending in one often, and we didn't get a huge amount of volatility last year, just because there's so much going on in terms of stimulus and the possibility of a massive infrastructure bill and, and so on. But I would be very surprised if we emerged from 2022 without some kind of, you know, I wouldn't say crash, but, you know, significant sell-off in the stock market, or at least something that seems significant given that we haven't really had much of a correction for the last, you know, well, almost two years now. So I think that that will, that's, you know, likely to be on the cards. Um, I'm still sort of finalizing the the roadmap that I mentioned that we um, publish every every year. So I'm still kind of still trying to think that through how that might play out because, you know, I, I don't want to give the impression that everything happens the same way every time because it doesn't. Mm-hmm. It's trying to work out how all the different things somehow contribute to the cycle repeating, which they always do because we can see that from history. It's just that when you're in the middle of it, it's sometimes a bit hard to work it out. Uh, and so trying to work out what might bring around sort of volatility that you normally see at the start of a decade in the first couple of years after a mid-cycle recession is not so easy. It could well be something to do with politics or geopolitics. Personally, I think the inflationary concerns will start to ease off a little bit, but there might be something related to that which which comes about. And I think, you know, given that stock markets have see the US stock markets have gone up so hard in the last year and a half, you know, that will cause some people to pull out some people to panic a little bit. And so you, so you, yeah, you just you'd want to be a bit careful. But you know, the point is, understand where you are in the real estate cycle, know that even if you do get a drawdown of 20%, it's not catastrophic, uh, and actually would be a, quite a good buying opportunity. Right. And that's where we're at. In the that's cycle right at. now. That's where we're at in the cycle. Awesome. Well, Akil, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. And I know I I took us in so many different directions, but the 18.6 year cycle that you work with, plus all the other cycles, it's so rich. There's so much, there's so much there to understand. And I would say for, for people that, that are, that are listening, like when you start to get into it, it might seem a, maybe it's simplistic at first, but then when you start to get in, then it gets overwhelming, but then it all starts to make sense because then what, what you see out there, whether you're doing your own transactions or the media, you see the stories and they all start to line up and 
it's, it's a really something else. So, yeah. So I just want to say thanks again for, for coming on. It's always so much fun. One last question for you is actually, when is your book coming out? Well, I am about to hand in the first draft to my publisher. And so I think there will be a six to nine month process there. So, so hopefully it'll be in time for Christmas next year or well before Christmas, but certainly make a good Christmas gift if anyone's listening to this. And yes, but I mean, just to your point about there being, you know, there being so many different sort of details and points of interest that you can, you can point to and you can put together. I'm actually finding it a bit of a challenge to write because there's so much I want to say and so many themes that I want to raise, but in a way that doesn't confuse people. Anyway, that's hopefully my editor can help me sort that out when I give him the draft. Yeah, I get, I get that because it is, it's a, it's a lot and it's a lot to hold and to explain to somebody a pattern that is so nuanced. Yeah. So, There's a lot of moving parts. Yeah. There is a lot of moving parts. But, you know, if if the first version is is a bit of rubbish, then I will do a second edition. I'm sure I'm sure it'll be great and when we when you have it, you'll let me know so that we can we can let we can let everybody know and I'll, I'll certainly be buying a copy because I'm still I'm still working my way through Phil's Phil's book, which which is really big. So, but yeah, good luck with the book, and mm-hmm. you know, thanks again for coming on. And you know, we obviously we stay in touch in all in all the content. So appreciate you t- okay, taking some time again this year. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in to Real Wealth, Real Health. We hope that you've enjoyed today's episode and found it both informative and insightful. We welcome all your questions and your feedback about today's episode, and especially. We welcome your questions about specific topics that you would like us to cover. So shoot us an email at podcast at alphai.com. And if you have a moment, we really appreciate ratings and reviews as it helps us grow our online community and our interactions with you. And we'll also be linking to a number of relevant articles on topics that we might have touched on during our conversations. Some of them are broad, some of them are technical, but we're always aiming to provide information that helps you better understand the mechanics of building this healthy financial foundation, especially if you're looking to do this with real estate. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.